3: What? (laughs) Now that it's December, I just hope you all remember to cover up and stay inside. Because prognostication say low rates of vaccination mean a triple-demic URI. Virus in the sky, virus in my eye, passing droplets through the air. If you're feeling like you need a dose pack starting with a Z, we're gonna teach you to beware. You're sneezing, cover up maybe avoid flu get vaccinating rsvs debilitating so wash your damn hands and i chew red eyes can't taste and can't rise turn in blue all night that's covid19 no ventilating i chew nose drip coughing a kid but you cool all night that is rsv feel suffocating yay oh, wait <laughs> Fever, headache, and fatigue, especially in the elderly, is suggestive of flu or SARS. Don't forget pneumococcus as your body starts a ruckus grammy decrease just by getting those shots. Droplets in the sky, droplets in our eyes, spreading disease near and far. A simple bit of masking drops your risk of ever hacking up a lung or other body parts. You asked us, so we're advising. Trust us, boo, we're sacrificing. Don't end up hospitalizing. Go get your vaccines. and welcome to 2023 travel medicine our very first cold open because it's cold and flu season (laughs) as always i'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc dr j
1: Hi, guys. This is a very surprised and delighted Dr. Santosh, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, and I bow down to your parody skills, Dr. Josh.
3: Guess who's Um, learned to use more parts of his editing software?
1: (laughs) That was so good. Oh, my God. That's so good. I love it. Uh,
3: For those of you interested, that will be available individually and separate from this episode on our other feed and possibly YouTube, because while I am learning editing, I am still not great at social media. So everything just goes up (laughs) everywhere. Yeah. All over the place, spreading (laughs) far and wide like those
1: droplets. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. that's, That's important for sure. Yeah.
3: Uh, but we are going to start having a few more of the, we'll call them formal musical parodies, as I try and learn how to tick-tock, doc-talk?
1: <laughs> Tick-dock.
3: Uh-huh. Although,
1: <laughs> although, I don't know if, that doesn't sound quite like it auto, I guess. I, I don't know quite how to phrase it, but yeah. Well... <laughs>
3: let's get into it i know it's not a new season just a new year but we have a lot of fun (laughs) stuff planned for this year i have used our break to good effect writing outlining planning while santosh has been jaunting off having fun around the world
1: (laughs) and usually it is there is a little bit of role reversal here that you know oftentimes uh, for, for those of you who are new in here, uh, yeah, Dr. Josh has a beautiful, beautiful travel itinerary uh, throughout the year and uh, wonderful friends to share it with, etc. And I, uh, I do love traveling, I do, but I am quite settled with a family and we, uh, it's, it's just tougher for me to, you know, be able to jaunt away. But uh, yeah. I just came back from India, Josh, and for the first time ever, I think, I was a tourist um, in my old you know, country of my origin. So not only just looking at you know my home state and city and everything of Bangalore, but actually traveling about a little bit and, and seeing the state of Karnataka and enjoying, it was a fun time.
3: So, you picked up all the info about your state, the Banga lore, as it
1: were? <laughs> so, the state is Karnataka. Uh, so, yes, Karnataka, I got to uh, go around. And yes, I, I have pictures to share with you uh, soon. I got to visit my mom and dad's medical school where they fell in love over a corpse uh <laughs> as one
3: does yeah yes. I believe that's how our relationship started as well
1: absolutely yes they they shared a uh cadaver for anatomy dissection and that's how they met and fell in love and so yeah I got to see who do you have
3: to kill to get a date around here
1: <laughs> I got to fall I got to see their beautiful. Uh, you know the the all the facilities, the anatomy lab, and um, I, I'll show you the pictures, Josh. They they actually have a beautiful museum uh, with preserved specimens. It's really just uh, it's a fantastic facility that they have there for education. Um, and and uh, yeah, I, I I'm excited to to talk about it if we want to do like a adjust the tip because Bangalore Medical College, being a state facility, is open to the public. Um, it's, you know, with with guidance and stuff, people are allowed to go and visit um, because, at least for the people of India, it's their tax dollars that's, that's paying for that facility. Probably so, not
3: the cadaver lab. Uh, that'd be tough to no. get a foot in the door.
1: Yes, yes, that's correct. But they do have beautiful libraries and museums and um, you can see where all of our wonderful medical students study uh, and you know the the knowledge that they gather etc it's it's really. <laughs> please wonderful. do
3: not feed the Gunners just observe no, them through is, the windows
1: that's, that's true that's true yeah.
3: Don't tap on the glass it makes the surgical students very irritated
1: mm-hmm. yes that is true
3: So I figured in addition to our musical we should go back to, well, not go back. I figured we should return to one of our recurring segments to start the new year, bring everyone in fresh, new, okay. and topical.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh.
3: And I know you're probably a little bit jet lagged, so I wanted to do something to help wake you up and get over that.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so no, no sleeping sickness for instance, right, that would right. be, I think, uh- and, <laughs>
3: And in the spirit of making you as awake as possible, Santosh, listening audience, it's time for another Around the
1: World in 80 Plagues. Oh, man, I absolutely love it. And now with, you know, new year, new headphones, I was able to very quickly soften... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, damn! Okay, never mind. <laughs> so, same as 2022, I guess.
3: <laughs> That'll learn you. That'll learn you yeah. real good.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> so, this week the plague we're tackling is one that's getting a lot more airtime lately. Part of our triple demic URI, which is of course RSV. Not P, uh, no RSVP, we don't want anyone to come back with this, just RSV, sure, sure. respiratory syncytial, syncytial, city virus.
1: Syncy, yeah, <laughs> it, it does depend on how you like to pronounce it and it, it differs on what side of the pond you're on like where you learned english etc but yeah it, it, over here in the united states more often than not you'll hear the term syncytial so uh meaning uh syncytia are what happens when individual cells kind of merge together and in this case it's due to the insult of the virus itself which we'll be talking about, and partially a defense mechanism and partially a very kind of cruel trick that the virus plays on the cells so that it can propagate much, much more easily.
3: And all this time I've been calling it Syncidial, I've I've been missing out on perfect in-sync opportunities. Like yeah. I could have I could have opened up this episode with a cold open of it's gonna be RSV. Well, damn! (laughs) Yeah, that's ah. Well, let's let's take it back to the old school because I'm an old fool who's so cool and talk a little history.
1: Yeah. Okay. RSV, pretty
3: recent virus in terms of discovery, as they go. First discovered in 1956. Uh Uh, and has since been recognized as one of the most common causes of childhood illness. So as a pediatric ID doc, this is super in your wheelhouse.
1: Yes, and I will say even more generally, uh, pediatricians as well. Um, This is one of the most commonly encountered viruses that a general pediatrician has to deal with if you're a hospital physician you're dealing with the more severe aspects of it but if you're an outpatient pediatrician you will see many many cases of this particular virus acting as one of the most common causes of the common cold or just a you know a mild to moderate Upper respiratory tract infection. So, very, very common, and very common, especially in this respiratory viral season, in this, you know, flu season.
3: However, although this is one of the most common causes of childhood illness, it was not originally discovered in humans.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, I should say not originally recognized, so it was probably around for a very long time, well recognized virus. But it, yeah, the, the the original organisms, the original hosts uh, w- that it was described in was not human. <laughs> in
3: fact, in fact, I'll give you a hint: the original name before we renamed it to RSV. Was CCA or chimpanzee choriza Coriza? agent?
1: <laughs> choriza. Choriza.
3: Just trying to get a choriza out of me, aren't you? Yeah. So, and that's of course means chimpanzee coughing disease. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, choriza, you know, so we talk about, you know, when we have measles, right? Cough, choriza, conjunctivitis. Cariza is the fancy term, Josh, for you know, the snottiness and congestion and runny nose and everything that kind of combines in your traditional upper respiratory viral infection to give you that cold-like look.
3: So a group of twenty, and I love how this is in quotes in the paper by Morris et al. A yeah. group of twenty quote unquote normal chimpanzees at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, which of course makes me think of a bunch of monkeys in lab coats.
1: <laughs> they, they were test subjects, yes. Right,
3: like grad students.
1: Sure, sure. I, I would say the difference being they're there against their will, but um, I'll, I'll, Hey, I'll, hey, uh,
3: the grad students knew what they were getting into, Santo. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah uh, uh, there's quite a few cynical... Uh, grad students out there who would be like, yep, just like...
3: <laughs> so, curious George indeed. But yeah. a respiratory illness characterized by coughing, sneezing, uh, purulent mm-hmm. nasal discharge in a group of 20 chimpanzees at the Walter Reed Army Institute mm-hmm. uh, that... This, This actually is really interesting when you start looking into the study. So first described it by Morris et al in 55 and then Chinook in 1956 wrote on the association of a new kind of mixovirus with an infantile croup or cough that produced a sponge-like change in monkey tissue cultures.
1: Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And by the way, uh, mixovirus is not mixed up virus, <laughs> M- M-Y-X in this case, which is a, uh, not a genera, but it's a, it's a family of viruses. And there are others which are close to it, like ortho mixoviruses and paramixoviruses.
3: So that's a separate study with human children, not, not chimpanzees, but there's a reason that I'm bringing both of these up because... Mm-hmm. Uh, they noted that when grown in these monkey cultures, the it caused this sponge-like cytopathogenic change. The infants mm-hmm. from who the agents were isolated, as well as three additional patients, developed significant increases in complement-fixing hemagglutin. Basically, a lot of signs of infections during their recovery period. Let's gloss over that for a moment. Santos, try and hold okay. yourself in check. Sure, sure. And <laughs> and. In 1957, a year later, you see two isolations of a similar agent from infants who had some pretty severe lower respiratory infections, like a bronchopneumonia, as well as a bunch of additional children from whom they couldn't isolate the virus. This is really starting to show how infectious the agent was. And these two human viruses studied by Chinook and Finberg that we're talking about were indistinguishable completely similar looking to an agent associated with an outbreak of choriza in chimpanzees, our CCA virus.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So now all of a sudden you're seeing, you know, everything that looks just like the, the chimpanzee choriza virus, but it's in humans and very wisely. And Josh, we've actually gone through, the same kind of renaming process very recently for now what's called Mpox, right? Or monkeypox. So the you know, you you had all this going on and they said, you know what? If we're diagnosing this in human children, probably, probably we shouldn't be calling this a chimpanzee virus. That that might be a bad idea. <laughs> so yeah, they they named it based off of the pathology, what you saw under the microscope. And you had to prove it. You actually had to go through using sera. So that's the antibodies to show that, um, you know, which antibodies neutralize what, you know, and, and you had to really show in that day and age when you didn't have good genetic testing and all that kind of a thing. That hey, these two are actually one and the same. The antibodies against one neutralize the other, but they don't neutralize other viruses, etc. So it was a you know kind of a a long and arduous process that they had to go through. But yes, they eventually showed these are one and the same, and let's call it RSV respiratory syncytial virus.
3: Back to our 1950s lab, a person working with the infected chimpanzees subsequently, naturally, experienced a respiratory infection. And even (laughs) though they couldn't isolate the virus from the person, they did note a rise in antibody for the CCA virus. The chimp virus was observed during that person's recovery by looking at Sarah. So then rather than thinking, oh, this is transmitted from monkeys to humans, they mused that there was a suggestion that CCA was actually a virus of human origin that produced illness when introduced into. So it actually went the other way. We gave it to the monkeys.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this wasn't a case where we think about with SARS, where you have mutation and recombination That's going to help it jump across species in terms of hosts. This is just it's general enough as a, uh, you know, a a virus mechanistically that it can go ahead and invade human tissue or chimpanzee lung tissue with, you know, equal uh, vim and vigor, so to speak
3: and when they tested in the monkeys they took a po- you know they took this population they gave it to a couple chimps reintroduced them into the population and then 100% of the chimps got it so they're like oh oh this actually spreads quite quickly <laughs> yeah. uh, now the last paper i'm going to kind of bring up before we start talking a little bit more about some of the additional symptoms and treatment history is a yeah. fun one just in terms of statistics, which you all know I absolutely love, so I'm going to gloss over the numbers and just get to the gist of it. Okay. They In Australia in the early 60s, Lewis in 1961, as well as a separate researcher, Forbes, in 1961, isolated further viral specimens, and they wrote that for several years prior to July 1960. Influenza and parainfluenza virus groups were the main causes of respiratory epidemic infections. But yeah. okay. in July of 1960, that pattern changed abruptly and mysteriously with a sudden increase in a number of infants admitted with bronchiolitis, bronchitis, and infants with pneumonia that was not paralleled by an increase in or or a similar increase in pneumonia in older age groups. So the the takeaway is that all of a sudden, we're seeing a lot more infections in specifically something that affects the young, not just the young and the elderly. Right. And prior to this, July 1960, the diagnosis of, of bronchiolitis or inflammation of the bronchioles in the airways was pretty infrequent. And I couldn't find a satisfactory explanation, because as we said, it's not like this RSV had just suddenly sprung into existence, but prior to 1960, no one was really getting it. And this is not spreading out from this group of chimpanzees at Walter Reed. That just happened to be when the agent was discovered, but it had already been in the population. So I don't know. That was a fun little medical mystery I was unable to solve through research, why things changed so abruptly in 1960 and this started becoming much more prevalent in the pediatric population.
1: Yeah, the the most common reason for this when we start seeing papers published and you know all this kind of a thing is really just that we started looking, right? That we had an idea of what to look for what to examine for which symptoms and then what virus to go for, et cetera. And that really helped us out, um, to actually see what we were seeing. Um, I tried to do this too and uh, you have to go back a little bit and use search words such as wheezing, uh, and, and, you know, kind of describing the symptoms that don't include this entity of bronchiolitis per se. Uh, So, you know, to to actually see the descriptors, there are folks who talk about, oh, you know, the, the rise of the Industrial Revolution and, you know, maybe we needed pollutants to be in the air, certain pollutants to go along with the viral infections themselves. We do know, Josh, that the more and more that we saw premature children who were born with immature lungs and who would have chronic lung disease of neonates because they were born premature they needed respiratory support as babies and then they were much much more prone to their lungs closing up and shutting down um, but yeah you're right we don't have a like a clean clear explanation of all of a sudden like the literature just takes off boom at you know around that period of time my bet, though, is on we recognized it. We we knew what to look for for the first time.
3: Maybe, but again, we see very clearly para influenza and influenza, and all of a sudden there's this newer agent. So yes, yeah. we're recognizing it, which would explain a proportionate increase, but just not. I don't know. I'm not satisfied with that explanation.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I- uh, I get you. I get you. There are, you know, new and emerging illnesses. You know, pertussis is actually, for instance, a, a fairly young thing. SARS-CoV-2, brand new, uh, you know, in 2019. But I, I don't think this is the case with this one, that it was a brand new disease. But yeah, something was up. Some Something
3: yeah. odd happened. I want the origin story where is, is <laughs> issue number 1 yes. but let's talk a little bit about RSV before we get back into the history so it it causes annual outbreaks of respiratory illness in all age groups you know we're going to be focusing a lot on children but it affects everyone in most of the united states it tends to start in the fall and peaks guess when that's right now right now in the winter, December, January, February, but the timing and severity of a season in a given community can vary from year to year. Sure. Now, part of the reason I wanted to talk about this as our next plague is that, of course, scientists are developing several vaccines. And just a few weeks ago, Pfizer announced that the FDA had agreed to review its RSV vaccine To be administered to adults over the age of 60 as a priority and this could happen as soon as may so past the peak of this particular season but it would still be a huge breakthrough as it would be the very first sanctioned vaccine for rsv and it's shown positive results in a clinical trial for pregnant people and that will be the next group they're seeking approval for
1: yes this is gonna be so cool. Uh, We can talk a little bit about the history of vaccines, et cetera, Um, you know, coming up in just a little bit, why it took us so long to, you know, create a proper vaccine against this. But it seems, especially for our babies, the best strategy is actually to vaccinate mom, okay, and then mom's immune system will react to the vaccine and it will... You know, mom will form antibodies, and now baby, whether premature, mature, whatever it is, will be born with mom's antibodies on board and they will be protected. And this strategy, Josh, we know works really, really well for influenza. It works really, really well for pertussis. So we give moms TDAP when they're pregnant. And of course, now SARS CoV 2 or COVID 19. Um, we've got, uh, you know, now excellent data that you vaccinate mom, baby gets mom's antibodies, and you know this vaccine, which would be otherwise not terribly efficacious in a little baby because their immune system's not kind of mature enough to recognize it. Um, this one, you know, this is a great way to kind of sidestep, uh, you know, their immature uh, immune system. So this is i I absolutely love the strategy this this is gonna be great
3: so we're we'll come back to the vaccine talk shortly, but let's talk a little bit more about the pathology and and some of the symptoms yes. uh, so as we said, it's a respiratory illness, usually a cold like illness but can cause lower respiratory infections like a bronchiolitis and pneumonia. Uh, now, again, although this is very common and it can be severe, I'll give you a few harder numbers. About 1% to 2% of children younger than six months of age with RSV may need to be hospitalized. 1% to 2% doesn't sound like a lot, but there's a lot of kids out there, yeah. and they're all you know, around each other. Um, severe disease is usually seen in very young infants, toddlers, those who are considered high risk are the premature, those under six months, and then the usual suspects of chronic lung or heart disease, immunosuppressed, and people who have neuromuscular disorders, difficulty swallowing, clearing mucus secretions, things like cystic fibrosis. Yes. But But Fear not, parents, most infants and young children infected with RSV do not need to be hospitalized.
1: Yeah, this is the, the you know, the best piece of news I think anybody can hear. Because, you know, this virus really hit hard this particular year. It comes around every single year, by the way. But just to be a little bit reassured. If you don't have a very, very young child, if you don't have these kind of, you know, these at-risk conditions that Dr. Josh just mentioned, right? So, you know, premature lungs, neuromuscular disease, in some cases, Josh's cystic fibrosis, or if they have uh, congenital heart disease uh, where they get, uh, you know, cyanosis because their heart isn't, you know, shaped the way that it should, frankly. And if you otherwise have, you know, a kid, they're above six months of age, there's no asthma in the family, et cetera, et cetera, then you're actually, by and large, the risk is pretty low for your kid to have to go to the hospital. Now, you might need to go see the doctor because they might need to get some support, some reassurance that, you know, hey, you know, they're going to be okay. Let me double check and make sure everything's all right, but that you don't have that super high risk of needing to go to the hospital and get, um, you know, oxygen and all this other kind of stuff, which can be scary.
3: Now, when you don't have some of these chronic conditions, although chronic, calling a condition chronic in somebody who's less than a year old is a little, it's, it's a semantic yeah. thing at yeah, best. Yeah, yeah, um, or <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but, but you know, that's a pediatric thing. I'm a geriatric doctor.
1: So yeah, that's very true. Yes.
3: Infants are most likely to be hospitalized with RSV when they're around two and a half months of age because their lungs are still developing. They have smaller airways. Um, Yes. Most of the time. When you see this RSV infection in kids, they'll have a runny nose and a decrease in appetite before any other symptoms appear. That'll be followed one to three days later by a cough then sneezing, wheezing, fever may occur, decreased activity. uh, Maybe the only signs of infection may be some increased irritability. Sure. As compared to adults who get infected, usually have mild or no symptoms, more looking like a cold, an upper respiratory tract infection, which again, runny nose, sore throat, headache, fatigue, uh, a full disease course in adults usually lasts less than five days. You know, it's, it's gone by the end of the work week. Although, just like in kids, adults...
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
3: may have more severe symptoms if they are over 65, have chronic lung and heart disease or are immunosuppressed, and it can lead to an exacerbation or trigger asthma or COPD or AFib. So if you have other of these chronic conditions, an RSV infection itself may be completely unnoticeable, but it will set off your body's other chronic diseases.
1: Yeah. Right, so you know, start with something like asthma. All of a sudden, you get hit with this, and it makes things worse. So that's the concern. That's the main concern. And you know, this is the same type of idea we think of with COVID. Um, You know, that we start with okay, there's there's someone who's at risk for severe disease. Then they get COVID, and this is when people get into weird conversations about like oh did they die from covid or did they die with covid these are kind of the things that we have to think about but in essentially you have an interaction between two conditions going on that makes things much much worse than either of the conditions alone or by themselves
3: so let's Circle back around now that we know what some of the symptoms of RSV look like. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you very briefly just the pathology, the, the hardcore bio for all my med students out there. It's a member of the pneumovirus genus of the family paramyxoviridiae, sure. which is it's a negative sense RNA with an encapsulated genome and a lipid envelope. Most of our listening audience is not going to be super interested in that, but it's important and you'll learn why shortly. That envelope is a plasma membrane lipid or fat bilayer that has three glycoproteins. This is the important part. Take notes. The F protein or fusion protein, that's what helps it attach or that's what helps it merge with the cell. The attachment or G protein. And the small hydrophobic SH protein, RSVF, that fusion is the main neutralizing antigen, highly conserved, meaning most versions of RSV have the same version of the F protein. And that's the one that's essential for the virus to be viable, to actually get in and do what it's trying to do. The G protein is a protective antigen that's what triggers your antibodies to attack it. Both of those antigens, F and G, are the candidates for vaccines and targets for monoclonal antibodies. Now, let's go back to the history. Bear with me. Wake back up. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> so, well just want to put it all together real quick. Okay. So you've got one protein, which helps the virus do its thing to actually fuse together cells, fusion F protein. And then the G protein is one of the most prominent antigens on the surface of the virus. This is what our antibody recognizes. All right. We're going to be talking about monoclonal antibody. Now, this is a form of immunization we oftentimes call it passive vaccination because you're actually not showing the body an antigen. You're actually raising up the antibodies and giving the antibodies themselves as protection. So if those terms come up, you know, don't, don't be afraid.
3: <laughs> so uh, yes, if we have known about RSV since the 1950s, why have we not developed some sort of vaccine before now well interestingly (laughs) a word you never want to hear a doctor say yeah
1: yeah in
3: 1966 there was a vaccine being developed a formalin formalin being similar to formaldehyde like what we preserve our corpses in yeah uh, a formalin inactivated vaccine against rsv was administered to infants and children in four studies in the US. The ch- immunized children were then exposed to RSV in the community, and children who were seronegative for the virus before getting vaccination unfortunately and unexpectedly experienced a pretty significant increase in their subsequent infections. They got more frequent infections, they got more severe infections, and sadly, a couple children died. And this pretty much ended all research into a RSV vaccine from the 60s until very, very recently.
1: Yeah, this has happened to us a couple of times, Josh. There was an era in vaccination where this was kind of the best technology available to us. We took the entire virus, the whole virus, okay? And we went ahead and we inactivated the thing. We we shut it down using formalin. Formalin is... Uh, it, it, it's a material and we I don't know if
3: this is going to be the best analogy. It might be a little dated for some of our listeners, but think okay. of it like the dip in who framed Roger rabbit.
1: It's a- <laughs> that's actually pretty fair. I I, I think that's okay. The, th- well, the, the dip, dissolved you know kind of a thing what formaldehyde and formalin does is it cross certain proteins so it inactivates the virus by actually sticking its proteins together right now the the formalin doesn't come along into a person's veins you know, or anything when you inject it you wash away the formalin okay And the idea is, well, you're presenting the body with the entire virus, so it should recognize it and it should be able to shut it down. But we don't fully understand why, but it happened with formalin-fixed RSV. It did happen, Josh, with a formalin-inactivated measles virus. But rather than provoking an immune response, which shut down subsequent infections— it actually caused an unusual or an atypical immune reaction and then the subsequent infections were actually a little bit severe a little bit you know hyper so it it didn't have the desired effect and it's really important to tell people about this not because oh scary vaccines no it's because when these kind of things are recognized the biggest takeaway from this is we meaning doctors and public health folks and everything shut it down it was very quickly recognized and it was said okay no more all right we're not using this vaccine anymore and that happened that happened historically and i'm very happy to say that the surveillance and everything about it worked really well and we shut it down
3: but of course the scare from this you know Two children died as a result of receiving the vaccines in the studies, which meant everyone just said, all right, well, you know, I guess we're just not going to be able to develop a vaccination for this. And this is, well, not long before the era of misinformation, but you can imagine how that would pay out now in the world of 2023. So. Now let's get into a little bit of this one. So rather than continue trying to make a vaccine from inactivated virus, which led to a lot of highly technical explanations for why it caused this reaction that I will link to in the show notes, but it's it's a little heavy for this show. Um, yeah. Researchers have been attempting to make a protein-based vaccine. Remember FNG? I know you yes. do in which an isolated component of the virus, like a surface protein, is then used to trigger a protective immune response. So we break it off like a piece of that Kit Kat bar, (laughs) rather than using the whole thing. And a major breakthrough came when scientists like McClellan characterized the different conformations of protein F. So... Protein F exists in two different forms, a post fusion form that's very, very stable Mm -hmm. and a pre fusion form that is not the protein that we're trying to use to make a vaccine takes on the pre fusion form when it's still unstable and would have more trouble attaching. So when the virus and host cell are coming together, the protein based vaccine would, for lack of a better word, cock block them
1: yeah <laughs> there, there there are better words but I, I like it
3: <laughs> there may be better words but yeah. I think that is the most accurate descriptive one and sure. um, And it will then transition to a second form once the infection's taken hold. So pre-fusion F is a very unstable protein, but that's what's fully active and therefore gives you the most robust immune response. So that was what was needed to make an effective vaccine. And that is what is essentially being tested. Yes, correct. Um, So very exciting. So the new vaccine that is waiting FDA approval could be available as early as spring of 2023 is worlds apart from this 1966 uh, formalin vaccine it's using a different method a different particle different understanding so that's just all historical context Uh,
1: yeah
3: please be aware (laughs) Um, yes now in one trial Pfizer gave the vaccine to pregnant people to boost their total antibody numbers. As we said, the idea being that those antibodies would then get transferred to their infants. And in their press release, they said that this strategy had an efficacy of 81%, 81 81.8% against severe cases of RSV in the infants in the 90 day postpartum period. So right after being born that first month and a half, 81% 81% of the severe cases, the ones that could put you back in the hospital or keep you there, were protected against.
1: Wow, that's that's really beautiful.
3: On the other end, my end of things, in another phase 3 trial, it was reported to have an efficacy of 85.7% at preventing severe disease in adults over the age of 60. One other treatment we have, the monoclonal antibody palivizumab Pele, <laughs> uh, palivizumab. So this monoclonal antibody can be administered monthly as a prophylactic to reduce the severity of illness in infants and young children. But as I'm sure you can imagine, the cost of a monoclonal antibody, the need to get a shot every month in a young child, And so the frequency and the fact that it must be injected usually means not the first line of treatment. And they really, physicians will only give it to very high risk infants and children.
1: Yes. So A, because of how much we have. So it it is important to note that this is kind of a precious resource. Um, You know, we, we can't just give it around willy-nilly we do have to find who is at highest risk and administer it to those kids and it has a short half-life to it right antibodies just in and of themselves don't last very very long so you do have to then uh administer it in this case once monthly during the actual time of the uh yearly epidemic and Josh this is can be really really frustrating so what i have to do actually is i i have to watch how the uh the the disease is spreading by looking at epidemiology and if you'll remember back some of you wonderful people uh, who've been following with us for a while. In, in influenza, we use our wonderful sentinel chickens, right? Oh, so, I
3: love <laughs> our sentinel chickens. Yeah, yeah.
1: So there, there are some cases where we use that. There are some where we have tracking across the nation using the National Respiratory and Enteric Viral Surveillance System, NREVSS. And uh, I have to follow it and see when in our region – Everything is starting to peak. And in order to conserve this resource properly, I have to kind of turn it on. I have to say, okay, now it's time to start administering this. So now please begin. Okay. And then, you know, in our neonatal intensive care unit, when kids are getting kids start discharging and then our outpatient clinic, they have to call and they have to get this medication you know, reserve the doses and then start giving it out. It is not an easy process. Um, we do have uh, a, an antibody on the horizon, Josh, that has a much longer half-life that can be given once per RSV season. So we're excited for that um, to complete phase three trials and come out. But for right now with Palivizumab, we're kind of stuck.
3: Let's talk a little bit about the triple demic and (laughs) comparing RSV to COVID to flu, which is which, how do you know? Does it even matter? Uh,
1: (laughs) And we do have to keep in mind that we we talk about the triple demic because the viruses that we're going to mention are easily the most prominent um, kind of on our, in our scope. But the truth of the matter is, it's much more than a triple demic. When respiratory viral season comes around, there are perhaps hundreds of different viruses that are circulating alternately throughout the season.
3: A Google demic.
1: A go- yeah, exactly.
3: A Bing demic? Nah. No. Uh, so, but they do tend to be grouped into families. So, as. As was mentioned in our cold open song, at least a little bit of it, (laughs) flu symptoms tend to start all of a sudden. They come on almost immediately, while COVID and RSV tend to come on more gradually. All three will cause similar symptoms, but looking at the timing can help clue you in. Certain symptoms tend to dominate with one illness over another. So fever, for example, much more common with flu and then COVID than RSV. And the Mm -hmm. CDC publishes weekly flu and COVID maps, just like Google, that can help you figure out if one virus is more active in your community, as well as reports on local RSV activity. So here's a quick primer. For COVID, Mm -hmm. symptoms start gradually tend to get worse around day two or three, and sore throat tends to be one of the earliest symptoms, especially at first. It's that The incubation period is three to ten days, usually four to six, and it is contagious from the onset of symptoms until the fever is gone and at least ten days have passed.
1: Yes, and we are using some, you know, kind of statistical data to determine this. This isn't one of these things where, you know, we know for absolute sure this is when the shutdown is. However, Josh, we actually have done in adults, um, not only prospective studies when people actually natively come down with this viral infection, but we have done what's called volunteer studies where people have, you know, their health are checked out and everything. And then not with influenza because that one's scary, but with a healthy adult, you know, put RSV up their nose, watch and see how they do. And then actually in a controlled environment, see how long it takes for them to stop shedding the virus when you know swabbing daily or something like that so they're they're small studies and stuff but they're very very efficacious to help us uh find this stuff out and i absolutely love it
3: those are the real heroes people who (laughs) volunteer to let scientists pick their nose daily
1: (laughs) it's true Uh volunteer respiratory viral studies uh, as was done in Salisbury, England at the common cold research center. I believe it was called. Yeah. Cold um, camp. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And others such as that they've really given us beautiful data on the dynamics of these viruses. And then, you know, we can go on and extrapolate from that and be able to give these type of guidelines. Um, so, for viruses.
3: so as we said, COVID, Three to 10-day incubation, usually around four to six. Symptoms start gradually, get worse around day two or three. For flu, the incubation period is shorter, only one to four days, two on average. It is contagious one day before the symptoms start and up to seven to 10 days after symptoms, including fever, begin. The worst days are three to five. That's what I like to call my sexy radio voice day. (laughs)
1: yeah 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 or if you happen to catch this i think during um you know because it it can happen in the summertime if you happen to catch it during your con time your 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 con
3: oh con con crud yeah
1: this this could be a part of your con crud when you start feeling it like this yeah
3: and symptoms tend to stay the same for about one to five days before slowly fading and getting a little bit better.
1: And by the way, it can also modulate during that time, meaning that it goes from having a nose that's pouring out, you know, runny, 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 changing over to a more, you know, congested or blocked up kind of a thing, or your snot can go from clear to green back to clear, which is a really common thing. Um, Or it can go from throat to nose, then down to like a tickle, like a cough. So, um, But but with flu, you
3: tend to see much more, again, fever, very common in flu, especially in the elderly, Mm -hmm. along with body aches, myalgias. Uh, You don't really tend to see muscle aches as much in COVID or RSV. COVID tends to have more diarrhea or gastric upset. RSV we'll talk about in a moment. Flu really hits you in the body as well as the lower respiratory tract.
1: Yeah, that's it's a big hallmark of, you know, I I'm, I'm coming down with something, I'm coming down with the flu and it really turns into a flu-like illness if you haven't diagnosed it. If people say that, oh, not only am I high fever, but that achy, crampy kind of feeling all over where your arms and legs feel heavy. That's that's a that's a big hallmark of flu.
3: Now, RSV, the incubation period again is about two days and it is contagious again about seven to 10 days after symptoms, which are tend to be at the worst on day five. So about halfway through and then people start to gradually feel better. People with RSV get a huge surge in mucus production, which is why most of the RSV symptoms are related to runny nose and congestion.
1: Yep. Snot, snot, snot.
3: Even if you have RSV, most people don't usually test for it because there's no treatment yet. We are talking about the vaccines. We're talking about those monoclonal antibodies. But there are generally no accepted treatments other than supportive care. And even in the severe cases, it's supportive care in a hospital.
1: Yeah, now, there, there, there's no specific antiviral out there. Now, if you're super
3: interested in testing, there is an at-home test by LabCorp that can test for all three, COVID, RSV, and the flu with just one nasal swab. (laughs) And while you can do this test at home, you still have to drop off your sample at a local lab and wait for results, which take one to two days to come back. Could be up to three or four if it's over a weekend. And by that point, most of this will already be resolved. (laughs) So it's really just done out of academic interest.
1: Yeah. There are labs that do collect uh, samples a little bit more uh, aggressively or more commonly. And a lot of those, Josh, are actually surveillance labs that are in the public health network. So it feeds back eventually up to the CDC and the large surveillance systems to help us keep track. Um, Now, As molecular tests, antigen tests are becoming easier, cheaper, all this kind of a thing, I personally would love to see the availability of at-home testing and for that to be submitted as active surveillance because more data is always helpful to see the dynamics of these uh, epidemics. But that's just my nerdy public health self.
3: So we'll throw up a handy dandy chart of the differences between but all of these symptoms can be seen with all three it's just each one has its own fashion sense and style as it were.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Now there is overlap and there is enough overlap that you can't be sure you know if you have these symptoms versus these symptoms. These are really just percentages you know, flu much more common, uh, you know, to cause uh, fever and body aches, etc. But, you know, for for us, when we're sitting there as doctors, we can use these as predictors. And I think much more importantly, Josh, we can use it to do things like, okay, hey, you know, if we maybe don't have as much availability for flu testing, this person over here who has Uh, you know, body aches and fever, as well as their respiratory symptoms, it's probably going to be a better idea to test that person for flu versus this person not. Because of course, for influenza, we do have antivirals that work uh, semi-okay to help you get better faster.
3: Yeah. So that's it for this week. I hope that that was enticing and infectious enough that you come back and continue to visit with us through the rest of the year we do have of course journal clubs as well as some more guest episodes coming up including one where we will talk some sports medicine because i have not been living under a rock and did notice that we've had a perfect opportunity coming up in the future for now however let's leave off with a just a tip again from Bangalore.
1: Yeah. So in beautiful Bangalore, India, if you go close to the center of the city, actually, Josh, where, you know, the, the, what we call the old city, um, you can find Bangalore Medical College and Research Institute, um, the big campus that's there. There is what they call the undergraduate and graduate campuses so in india as with many other countries around the world including the uk medical students are actually by and large chosen from their 12th grade so what they call pre-university college is you know 10th 11th and 12th grade so that actually they'll be testing and going into medical school a six-year program, boom, straight from, uh, you know, when they're 18, which is scary <laughs> if I kind of think about it. So that undergraduate campus is where you earn your MBBS, which is called the Master's in Biology Bachelor of Science. And that's the undergraduate medical degree. And that campus, Josh, absolutely beautiful. They've got a brand new building for all of the undergraduates that was put up in 2018 with beautiful new lecture halls. But I think the hallmark for me, and I'll definitely send you some pictures um, that I was fully allowed to take, given permission by one of the assistant professors there who took me around, um, is... Two museums. They've got a museum of anatomy and an atom- and a museum of physiology and pharmacology that have uh, kind of beautiful uh, specimens that you can view, you know, sitting there in formalin and formaldehyde preserved so you can see, you know, and, and some of it you should be careful. You should be braced for it because they are malformations in, you know, uh, embryology, so like how a, a baby is formed, and then you know cancer in a bone or something like that. And then Josh, the most fascinating for me is not too long ago, these medical students, because they're starting from age eighteen and they have to learn basic anatomy and physiology and all these kind of things, biochemistry. They would do uh, studies on live animals, and so there are Josh dissection tables in there for all of these animals. And then instruments that you would use to test things like muscle strength and nerve stimulation and cardiac function and all these kind of things um, that if you go back and you see in textbooks, we don't use it anymore, where you would record like the impulses from a muscle, you know, on that cylindrical drum as that needle would kind of go up and down, uh like a like a little, you know, EMG like that. So absolutely such a cool display not only of anatomical specimens and teaching physiology and all these kind of things, but also a beautiful history of medical education in and of itself. Um, showing how med students used to learn and contrasting it with the methods that are used today to teach them the same concepts, without resorting to things like you know the the degree of vivisection and animal testing that we have in the past. Methods so, like
3: TikTok and the travel medicine podcast.
1: Yeah, so, <laughs> it was so. so absolutely beautiful, and I would like to uh, thank, uh, you know, Dr. Prashanth, um, who is, um, you know, an assistant professor in physiology who not only got his MBBS, but his MD. So his postgraduate medical degree, um, and is an excellent professor and showed me around. So shout out to you, Prashant, And, uh, thank you so much.
3: So that's it for this week. As always, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with a chance to subscribe to our bonus tier that has things like songs and conversations that go nowhere, extra material that we put up. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time... As always, start the new year with a song in your heart, soap on your hands, and a shot in the arm. And once you've done all of those things, (laughs) find a country that looks interesting, get out there on a plane, hopefully not Southwest, and uh, happy travels.
1: Bye, everybody.